Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Isaiah 21 and 22. And basically, um, we're just continuing on the book of Isaiah, and we're in a period which is really in history, uh, somewhere between the 8th, 7th, and 6th century B.C., and there was a lot of tumultuous things happening in the world, or the known world at the time. Nations were rising and falling. Most people have heard of Babylon, but maybe not Assyria. Certainly the Persians came after Babylon, etc. But God in his word was... Uh, speaking to the different nations, and it's sometimes disciplining them and basically asking them to repent or have a change of heart because of their pride, because of their wickedness, and because of a lot of different reasons. And uh, interestingly enough, God does speak to his people, uh, Israelites in the southern kingdom of Judah, and he's warning them as well. He's, dis- he's disciplining them because their behavior is egregious. They've largely turned their back on God, and therefore, with the lack of that relationship, they would lose certain protections. So we're going to take this in six parts and see where it goes and look at some modern applications as we go through it. So the first thing is Isaiah 21, starting with verse 1. It says, The burden against the wilderness of the sea. As whirlwinds in the south pass through, so it comes from the desert. From a terrible land, a distressing vision is declared to me. The treacherous dealer deals treacherously, and the plunderer plunders. Go up, Elam, besiege, O media, as its sighing I have made to cease, all its sighing I have made to cease. Therefore my loins are filled with pain, pangs have taken hold of me, like the pangs of a woman in labor. I was distressed when I heard it, I was dismayed when I saw it. My heart wavered, fearfulness frightened me. The night for which I longed, he turned into the fear for me. Prepare the table, set a watchman in the tower. Eat and drink, arise, you princes, anoint the shield. So the first out of six is really these uh, prophecies against Babylon. The wilderness of the sea can also be translated as the desert of the river. And if we understand that particular area, which is largely Iraq today, you have the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers that are pretty mighty rivers, and not long or not far east or west, you have desert. So it's a a really good name for the actual place. Uh, It denotes the geography of what he's speaking about. Now remember, Isaiah was speaking about things that happened before they happened. So Isaiah is speaking roughly in the 8th century B.C., And these prophecies had taken place sometimes 100, 200 or so years later. Um, Verse 2, he speaks about Elam and Media, which were really the area of the Medes and the Persians. Um, And they conquered Babylon like a storm. So as we read this, we look at these metaphors that he uses, and you can picture these armies coming in, kicking up dust on their horses and on their chariots, and, and pretty much it's like this this storm experience. And I try to um, picture what these prophets went through because we're going to find that the prophets sometimes were viscerally pained by what they saw in these visions. I can almost picture God, you know, God sees the future before it happens, right? So uh, he kind of has this, this thing going on, this scenario, this uh, actual event take place in these wars And it's almost like he's picked Isaiah up and plopped him in the middle of it. Those fighting the battles can't see him, but he can see and hear everything that's around him. The best way I could describe it is if you're living in the 1920s and uh, God shows you the future, you know, (laughs) World War II, and he picks you up and he puts you in the middle of the bombing of Nagasaki or the firebombing of Dresden, Germany. And it's, it's, it's horrifying to look at. Yes, they were the aggressors. Yes, they were considered the enemy. But God's ministers had compassion. 
and they grieved over the suffering of any people caught up in this typical situation. And I believe that uh, if you want to be a minister, or if you want to minister in some way, that you have to have compassion. Because you're going to see a lot of dysfunction, you're going to see a lot of troubling situations. You know, and I believe that compassion is a requirement for us to be used mightily by the Lord. He also says in verse 5, I'll pick some colloquialisms out of here. I'll pick some uh, different verses and then just trying to kind of make sense of it. But in verse 5, he says, anoint the shield. So when, this, when these armies would go into battle, a lot of times they would take lard or animal fat and they would grease up their shields. So when they went into war and the, you know, the swords would glance off the shields, if it wasn't a direct hit, they literally would slide off the shield. So it would give you a little bit of an advantage. But anoint the shields can have a double meaning because God sent this, these Medes and Persians against to fight the Babylonians because of the wickedness of the Babylonians. So in a sense, he anointed them for battle to subdue this wicked nation. Continuing on, verse 6, it says, For thus has the Lord said to me, Go set a watchman, let him declare what he sees. And he saw a chariot with a pair of horsemen, a chariot of donkeys and a chariot of camels. And he listened diligently with great care. Then he cried, A lion, my lord. I stand continually on the watchtower in the daytime. I have sat at my post every night, and look, here comes a chariot of men with a pair of horsemen. And he answered and said, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. If you're a student of the Bible, you've heard that before. And all the carved images of her gods he has broken to the ground. Oh, my threshing and the grain of my floor, that which I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have declared to you. So two out of six is God puts a watchman on the wall and he says, watch these events and then report on it. Pretty interesting. Back then they didn't have social media, you know, uh, reporting on things in real time. It's kind of a whole new genre of news today with social media, right? Um, back then they didn't have the really fast news cycles. And we think that we are very enlightened today. Uh, but I'll give you the advantage that they had over what we see in the news today they saw things that were going to take place before they actually took place. We haven't figured that out yet in our enlightened society. So when the prophets would speak, or the prophetic word was put out, you got a glimpse, a front row seat, of things that were going to happen before they ever took place. Pretty fascinating. Historically, 539 B.C., the Medo-Persians do conquer Babylon. The last king was Nabonidus, who was in the field. He had a co-regent named Belshazzar. That name should sound familiar. When we covered the prophet Daniel, we saw all about Belshazzar and his, his, um, his debauch, his drunken feast, the night that the Medo-Persians came and took the city. Again, this didn't happen yet as he's speaking. Pretty interesting. So physical Babylon is destroyed. Now, on, in prior sermons, I've shown pictures of uh, the area in Iraq, where the remains of Babylon are, the city, the walls, a lot of that stuff is still there, still standing thousands of years later. You know, they built this stuff out of earth, out of, out of uh, building materials that would last. And only because of the bombings and uh, other uh, catastrophes did some of it get worn away. But you can still see Babylon if you, you know, you go on your, um, you know, you can go on the internet and see pictures or you, if you ever go over there. Uh, when our troops went over there, they did see that. Uh, but this is a precursor to Revelation 18. So physical Babylon has been destroyed, right, when the Medo-Persians took it, but, or actually, and centuries later. But there's a spiritual, religious, economic Babylon that still controls a lot of the world that's eventually going to be destroyed by the Lord too, right, prior to the Lord's reign. And that's something that we look forward to. There's still a wickedness. There's still a... Um, an underlying uh, part of this world that's tied to satanic activity uh, because mankind through sin has forfeited it and it brought all kinds of evil. It's now a fallen creation, right? So verse 8, he says, look, a lion. This also can be translated, look, violence. It's a metaphor. It doesn't actually mean a lion walked by him and he said, oh, there's a lion, you know what I'm saying? Uh, So that can be translated one of two ways. Verse 11, continuing on. 
It says, The burden against Duma. He calls to me out of Seir. Watchman, what of the night? Watchman, what of the night? The watchman said, The morning comes and also the night. If you will inquire, inquire. Return, come back. So three out of six is the prophecy against Duma. Duma is also known as Edom. Edom was started by Esau. Now we're starting to get familiar. Jacob and Esau. Esau's descendants became the Edomites. The Edomites later became the Edomians. The Edomians later became the Herodians. And I, I say this for a reason. Herod, right? You know, you look at the time of Jesus. Uh, this competition between the false messiahs, the Herods, who wanted to be a messiah, and the actual messiah, Jesus. One came from Jacob. One came from Esau. If we could put up the map, it's pretty fascinating. In this situation, we see uh, what's now known as Jordan. Okay, here is Israel. And this was the southern kingdom back then of what was known as Edom or Duma. Uh, North and south on the right side are the mountains, Mount Seir and the mountainous range. And these people... Uh, eventually migrated west into the Jerusalem area, and they were driven out by the, a peoples called the Nabataeans. And when you talk about the Nabataeans, we also get into Petra, the rock city. We've covered that in, in, in prior sermons. It's actually fascinating to watch the migratory patterns of people and groups. The Nabataeans were pretty strong. They were pretty fierce. So the Edomites were driven out. They end up in Judah, end up in Jerusalem, and over time they start to develop, start to intermarry, and they become the Herods. So the Herod dynasty of the first century. Pretty interesting stuff. Um, doesn't come out well in the English, but when you read the Hebrew and you look at colloquialisms, you look at uh, basic sayings back then, what Edom is asking about is the night, or a metaphor for the trouble of war. And the prophet, through the prophetic words, gives him his answer. Verse 12, he says, inquire, inquire, return, come back. And this could be really understood as repentance. You know, today you might have gone into the city and, and you know, I, I don't like traffic, so I don't go into the city that much. But uh, I have been in different city environments and you have all kinds of people doing all kinds of things. And sometimes you'll see somebody on a, a, a crate with a Bible in there, like preaching fire and brimstone. And you hear the word repent, repent. Uh, you know, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it's near. What does that mean? What it really means is to change. You know, we're born into a sinful creation. We're born into a fallen creation. We're sinful. And we, we go along life in this, in this world system that's against God. Um, we, we don't seek after God. But then we're called to repent. And through God's, the power of God's word, we, as we're going through that walk of life, we sometimes stop and go, oh, God, look up. Oh, yeah, I was going my way and, and your way's over there. Repentance means to turn. It means to change. So it's a simple thing. It happens in the mind. It happens in the heart. It happens in the spirit, right? So, listen, people here, they come forward to receive the Lord after a sermon, and they think, gee, yeah, repentance. Yeah, change. Yeah, for 23 years, for... 50 years, for 70 years, how old you are, yeah, I haven't really sought after God. I'd like to repent. I'd like to seek after God. So what we see in the scripture is that God is always looking for these nations, for these people groups. You know, some people think God plays favorites. Well, that's actually not true. When you look at all these, um, you know, the known world at the time, whether it was Europe, whether it was Africa, whether it was the Middle East, the Far East, you see all these nations that God speaks about trying to get them to come back to him. But again, does that mean God is powerless? No. But what he did give us was free will. So for me, it happened uh, some 24 years ago. Just the point in my life where, okay, I do have free will, but I decided to choose him because I understood the concept of his son dying for my sins. So I'm thinking, gee, why would I not turn to him? Right? But for others, it happens later in life. For others, it happens early in life. You know, it's, it's your choice that you make. The concern that I have is that in a lot of preachings today, we're not hearing. And that's why sometimes somebody comes into a Bible-believing church and like, I've never heard this before. 
Or maybe uh, right off the bat, it's a little harsh to take in because they've heard positive preaching and, you know, you know, God wants you to be rich. And it's almost like this type of preaching treats us to remain like spoiled brats, that basically the only time you come to God is when you need something. That's not accurate in the scripture. You know, we, we don't have to be taught. I don't have to be taught to be selfish. I'll be the first one to raise my hand. You know, if I wanted to go my own way, I would say, Lord, give me this, give me that, give me this. Because we're selfish people. What we need to hear is preaching that preaches the truth. That we have sinned. We have fallen short of the glory of God. But Christ provided a remedy. Because if, if that wasn't the case, then why would Jesus have to die for our sins if we're just fine? You know what I'm saying? In order to get into God's heaven... In his perfection, the sin problem has to be dealt with. Therefore, we preach about repentance. We preach about change. And it's a good thing, but it's also an act of our free will. You know, we have to ask ourselves in our culture, with all these self-help books and, you know, books telling us how great we are and to build our self-esteem, and some of that stuff is good, but I think it's a little overboard. Again, I don't have to be taught. You don't have to teach a baby to be selfish. Because right away, when another kid takes one of their toys, they scream. They throw a tantrum. Sometimes they hit the other kids. So even babies, <laughs> you know, they just know how to be selfish. They don't really know how to share. It has to be taught. So these are all pretty good concepts. And listen, adults have to learn the lesson too. You know, we have to learn that lesson. Verse 13, continuing on, it says, The burden now against Arabia. In the forest in Arabia you will lodge. O you traveling companies of the Dedanites, O inhabitants of the land of Tema, bring water to him who is thirsty. With their bread they met him who fled. For they fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, from the bent bow, from the distress of war. For thus the Lord has said to me, within a year, according to the year of a hired man, all the glory of Kedar will fail. And the remainder of the number of archers, the mighty men of the people of Kedar, will be diminished. For the Lord of God of Israel has spoken it. So four, the prophecy against Arabia. If we could put up the map again. Basically, he's speaking about, again, God goes systematically through the world, right? God has a word for everybody. Unfortunately, because we're sinners, sometimes the word is, you're not going the right way. So he's speaking about the Arabian Peninsula and uh, those three tribes or those three people that settled in areas were up in this area. It was really north of the Arabian Peninsula, which we today know as Saudi Arabia. They had archers. They had things that they trusted in, but it didn't help them. The Assyrians were coming and they were going to be conquered too. Um, The Assyrian King Sargon in 715 conquered most of the Arabian Peninsula. This is all historical fact. Verse 17, the Arabians' mighty archers um, were something that they trusted in. Right? What are we trusting in this morning? What do we trust in as a nation? I mean, sometimes Christians will have the knee-jerk reaction, oh, of, of course I trust God. But are we really trusting God? Do our actions show that? Uh, Are we hedging our bets? Are we kind of trusting God, but there's other things I could do to make this go a little bit easier for God to help me? You know what I'm saying? Uh, You know, trusting in God. Uh, It's it's an interesting thing. It's, It's something that we should be doing, but if we're honest with ourselves, we're still tied to the flesh. We still want to go our own way at times. So, you know, it's something to look at. Uh, I've said it before, warning is loving. Right? God was warning these people, warning them of the future, and a lot of them, whether it was the Edomites or the Arabians or those in Judah, uh, they did say, hmm, you know, Isaiah is a pretty faithful guy. He's, uh, he's a man of God. He's been prophesying this stuff for a while. They started to read the prophecies. They started to listen. They started to obey, and they were saved. And that was a great thing, right? Verse Second uh, Kings 18, Wednesday night, a few Wednesday nights, I talked about that even Israel's enemies, this is fascinating, would read God's word. So again, we, we look at today, you know, there's the news, there's the internet, news travels fast. Well, news traveled fast back then too, not quite as fast, not at the speed of so many gigabytes, uh, but it did travel. 
And 2 Kings 18, you know, the, the Rabshakeh, the Tartar, all the military leaders of Assyria came and encamped outside of Jerusalem. They besieged it, and they were taunting the people on the wall. They were taunting the king. They tried to demoralize them to get them to come out and not put up a resistance. The Assyrians were going to win anyway, but, I'm sorry, they actually didn't win. <laughs> Let me back up for a minute. But they beat pretty much every other walled city. So their mentality was, we're going to lose soldiers trying to get in. So maybe we can minimize our losses if we can kind of mind control these people and demoralize them to get them to just put down their arms and just come out and give up. But you could tell when the Rabshakeh is having a discussion with King Hezekiah's men, his cabinet, that he's read Isaiah's prophecies. He brings up the proclivity or the propensity of the uh, inhabitants of Judah or Jerusalem to try to rely on the Egyptians when God said, don't rely on the Egyptians. So here you have an enemy, right, of God's people actually having this discussion saying, you're going you're gonna to rely on Egypt? Come on, you should know better. So he actually used, this, and he did twist their words, but he did understand the scripture. He did try to twist the scripture, and he tried to use it against God's people. Sadly, he didn't look at the scripture for himself, and therefore his army suffered a crushing defeat that night. That was the irony of the whole thing. It was right in front of him. And we can do that too. We could read the word, we can come to church, and we could listen to the scripture, and we could hear it for our spouse. Oh, I hope my spouse is listening. I hope my kids are listening. You know what I'm saying? Well, I hope the person that I'm, I'm warring with in the church is listening, uh, but we have to hear the message for ourselves because God's word is good for everyone. There's an application for everyone. Continue on to chapter 22, 1 through 14. It says, The burden against the valley of vision, which is also known as Jerusalem. What ails you now? That you have all gone up to the housetops. You who are full of noise, a tumultuous city, a joyous city. Your slain men are not slain with the sword, nor dead in battle. All your rulers have fled together. They are captured by the archers. All who were found in you are bound together, who have fled from afar. Therefore I said, look away from me. I will weep bitterly. Do not labor to comfort me because of the plundering of the daughter of my people. So you can see Isaiah when he would prophesy, he would say, well, this is what God says, because I would have no way to know what the future is. So this is what God says. And then he would speak for himself, saying, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really sick about this, I'm, and I'm going to get to that. I'm heartbroken about what, what's going to happen, because you won't listen. Continuing on, verse 5. For it is a day of trouble and treading down and perplexity by the Lord God of hosts in the valley of vision, breaking down the walls and of crying to the mountain. Elam bore the quiver with chariots of men and horsemen, and Kir uncovered the shield. It shall come to pass that your choicest valley shall be full of chariots, and the horsemen shall set themselves in array at the gate. He removed the protection of Judah. You looked in that day to the armor of the house of the forest. You also saw the damage to the city of David, that it was great. And you gathered together the waters of the lower pool, you numbered the houses of Jerusalem and the houses you broke down to fortify the wall. So they actually, you know, when you had a walled city and somebody was going to try to, you know, besiege it and break through it, you would, this, the walls were pretty thick. Sometimes people actually had apartments. They lived in the wall. It's kind of odd to us, but this happened a lot. So what they would do is they would um, say, listen, we all have to kind of pitch in here. And some of the houses would be knocked down so they could fortify the wall with the bricks. Pretty fascinating, isn't it? I, it's my job to bring us all the way back, millennia, to help us understand what was going on. And I've actually become a history lover more than I was when I was in high school uh, <laughs> through reading the scripture. Like, this stuff is so cool. So Isaiah goes into details about the things that would happen to fortify the wall against the invaders. Verse 11 you also made a reservoir between the two walls, I'll get to that, for the water of the old pool, but you did not look to its maker, nor did you have respect for him who fashioned it long ago. And in that day the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and for mourning, for baldness and for girding with sackcloth, 
quote, but instead joy and gladness, slaying oxen and killing sheep, eating meat and drinking wine, quotation, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Then it was revealed in my hearing by the Lord of hosts, surely for this iniquity there will be no more, no atonement for you, even to your death, says the Lord God of hosts. There's a lot there, it's a mouthful, but this is five out of six, and this is the prophecy now against Jerusalem. God's people became arrogant. They basically said, well, they're, they're Gentiles, well, they're foreigners, and we're protected. And basically, it, it's, it showed up in their pride, it showed up in their behavior, and God said, well, wait a minute, you, you guys aren't perfect either. You need to listen to some of this too. You know? and, and I caution those inside of the church as an organization, and, and I've seen this, to look down their nose at people who are on the outside. You know, God has called us to love the world, not the world system, but people in the world, to love the unsaved, right? So when somebody comes into the organization that we, we love them, we try to notice that they're new, we try to, you know, not overlook maybe, and I see this in churches, a dress code and there's a behavior, there's all this kind of stuff, and it can be a way to push somebody who doesn't know any better, who's just walked in looking to be refreshed, to push them away. It's almost like there's an invisible sign that says you're not welcome. You know what I'm saying? Um, Again, this is why the Bible's called a living word. We can take something thousands of years ago and make an application to our lives today, right? Or we can pretend, like they did, that we're fine because we're in the church and none of this stuff is for me. It's a nice story, Pastor. You know, I can't wait till the next story next Sunday. No. What does it say? Does it apply? Does it stick? Right? Now, this is most likely referring to elements of the siege in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar, although there's some elements to the Assyrian besiegement. Um, But what happened? What happened? Well, historical facts, verses 2 to 3. Some men died not of, of being... Uh, killed by the sword, according to what we read, some men, historical facts, died of the plague, of starvation. Uh, the city's under siege, siege for so long, sometimes these things start to happen. What are we going to do with the waste? What, how are we going to get fresh water? Uh, are we running out of food? Maybe rodents come. And what happens is you have this real problem inside the city before one shot is fired. So if you study siege warfare, you can kind of see all these things. He also says that many of the leaders, they chickened out, they cowered. They left the people to fend for themselves while they try to sneak out some, some tunnel or some route that the enemy wouldn't see and get, just get out of there. That's, that's sad. You know, you're tasked with caring for your people, and you're just going to leave, and they don't even know that you left in the dead of night, and they're kind of on their own to fend for themselves. So you see these elements. Um, verse 4, Isaiah is, and I'm, gonna, I'm coming back to it, he's sick about what he reads. He's sick about it. He's, he's disturbed. He, it, it bothers him. You see, Isaiah is a man of compassion. Yes, he had to write, repent. Yes, he had to write the sin that needs to be dealt with. But when he saw the vision, he, it, like viscerally, it bothered him. If you read the prophet Habakkuk, he had a different reaction. He was, you could say, apoplectic. You know, he, he hears, well, the Babylonians are coming to deal with us. It bothered him too. Again, I question the anointing of anybody who's in ministry who doesn't have compassion. And we can look at it on our level today if we're believers and we know some who, who aren't believers and they're going, or even a believer who's deceived and they're going down the wrong path. Um, it should bother us. You know, it should bother us that we see this dysfunctional behavior that's harming the person and their family. It should cause a compassion from the inside. So, that's what I love about God's uh, ministers that he used. And I tell you what, one minister, Jonah, who seemed to lack some compassion, God humbled him for that. He's like, there's, there's women and children. There's people who don't know any better in, in this city. How, how can you have that attitude? You know what I'm saying? So he rebuked the prophet Jonah for his lack of, of compassion for the people uh, in Nineveh. But... Listen, the Bible says this, that in 1 Peter 4.17, that judgment starts in the house of God. 
Now that's an application for the church in the New Testament, but you can see that idea happening in the Old Testament under God's people and, and the Israelites in, in Jerusalem and Judah and their attitudes. Uh, verse 5 through 7, details of the battle. Uh, Elam, or the pre-Persian peoples, did join up with the Babylonians and later broke off and started their own thing. So you, you see all these, again, for Isaiah, he's probably taking it all in, he's writing it down, but even he didn't have all the answers until the event actually took place. It must have been really cool to be a prophet or a prophetess, but it must have been also sad at the same time. Verse 11, we continue, or I'll read that again. It says, this is probably the, one of the saddest things that we read in the Bible, that God, he removed the protection of Judah. You looked in that day to the armor of the house of the forest, and, and there was armor in the southern kingdom. You know, Jerusalem had armor. They had weapons. And that's what they looked to. But you also saw the damage to the city of David, that it was great. And you gathered together the waters of the lower pool. You numbered the houses of Jerusalem and the houses you broke down to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool, but you did not look to its maker, nor did you have respect for him who fashioned it long ago. So God withdrew his protection at some point from Jerusalem. Well, it wasn't the Assyrians that took them over, but many years later, the Babylonians did. Right? That's a historical fact. And we see this in the New Testament, in the Gospels. Remember Jesus saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem? He weeps over the city because he knows the future. Right? Before Jesus was crucified, he knew in his spirit that the Romans were going to come and pretty much annihilate And the only thing that's left over there from what the Romans did in A.D. 66 through A.D. 70 is part of the wall. That's it. There's artifacts, there's things they dig up every day, but they destroyed the temple. They raided the gold, right? And Jesus saw this. And and what did he do? He wept. Not because Jesus is weak, but because he had compassion for sinners, you know, and compassion for sinners who were so stubborn that they don't repent, you see what I'm saying? Um, and just a few, again, historical facts that I find very interesting. The people prepared the walls for structural integrity. They also, if we can put up this picture, I did this on um, the next image on a Wednesday night. <laughs> That's a tourist. But this is the uh, Hezekiah's tunnel. Hezekiah, King Hezekiah was a good guy. He went uh, from the, the pool of Siloam, in the inside to the springs of Gihon on the outside. In the middle of those two things was a wall. This was going on underground. This was actually a tunnel. Back then, without caterpillars and modern excavation equipment, they used hand tools, right, simple tools, and a team of men from both different directions um, put, made this tunnel. What's on the ground, or on certain times, or back then, was water. So they made this tunnel so that if there was an enemy that was going to come and outside and besiege them, siege warfare, the enemy wouldn't know where the water was coming from because it was underground. It was actually a, a marvelous feat of engineering for, for pre-BC people, especially without electricity and hydraulics and all those things. It was actually wonderful. 1,750 feet tunnel. So yes, they did uh, build the tunnel. They did fortify the walls but they didn't consider God. And that's sad. In verse 11, it says, you know, you didn't consider the one who created it, the springs, the land for you to inhabit, the, you know, the, the geography, the agriculture. Um, and I'm just kind of, I'm embellishing of things that I've read on many different books. They didn't consider God. They forgot, they, they enjoyed the creation, but they forgot the creator. Now this is, pretty cool because the Apostle Paul picks this up in Romans 1. He says the same thing, that the people of his time, they worshiped the creation, but they didn't worship the creator, right? And today, even the atheist loves the planet. This is our home. You know, the person who's against God still enjoys sun on their face, you know? They enjoy a a nice breeze on a summer day. They enjoy the fruit that comes out from the ground. They enjoy the scenery and the different colors that God created. They worship the creation, 
but not the creator. And that's it. Verses 12 through 13, there's also a difference. I'll read this again. And in that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and for mourning. You know, I think sometimes as parents, if we're not understanding or we're not getting why God feels this way, when, if we're a parent, we can see this in our children, right? When they're stubborn and they're willful and they're doing things, quite frankly, that are destructive. And you want to see a change of heart. You want to see, when you discipline them, you want to see a, you know, they, them repent, so to speak, to their parent, to be like, you know, Dad, you know, Mom, yeah, you're right. I think it's, it's really hard as parents when they insist and they dig their heels in and they insist on going their own way when you know that's going to hurt them. So God is a parent. He's the creator. And, and he wants us, his people, to also learn from our lessons, right? Um, and there was a big difference between how God said, you know, you shouldn't be... What about when, when things in, in society are shameful, right? And, and as, as believers, especially with our kids, we're like, no, you saw that on TV. I know your friends did that. That's shameful. You shouldn't do that. You want to see a different uh, response from the kids. Not, well, that's what I want to do. And this is what God was saying. It's, it's, you should be weeping. You should be in sackcloth. This should be a burden to you. But you guys are partying in the streets. Very, very different attitude. Verse 13, again, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul picks this up in 1 Corinthians 15.32. The same expression. Let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Throw caution to the wind. Let's just party. Let's have a great time. Hey, we don't know if we have another, another second on this planet. For that reason, stepping into eternity, we should consider God, right? There's a lot of problems with, uh, with our culture. And I, I question ministries that are always going along with the culture. You know, maybe they, they go on talk shows and they rub elbows with the famous people and they call themselves pastor and they're saying the same thing that the world is saying. Listen, we have to take sometimes an unpopular route in love. And boy, that's difficult, isn't it? It really is by the power of the Holy Spirit that we can do that. You know, one of the things that's a current event that being a police officer for 25 years, I have a lot of experience with security and firearms and the whole gun control debate. I just looked at I actually did a little research because, unfortunately, when there's a, a shooting or a, a massacre or a church shooting or a school shooting, right away people go into their camps. Well, it's about this. Well, it's about that. And then what happens is something happens the next day and the news cycle forgets about all the suffering people who are bleeding in the hospital. It's a new subject. Let's change the subject. But I just want to go a little bit into detail. We've had, close, we've had 19 years of school shootings, starting with... Columbine, um, Eric Harrison, Dylan Klebold. Well, everybody else kind of moves on. There's a few of us that actually are interested in how the mind of somebody who could kill fellow classmates thinks. So I read their manifestos. I read their confessions. What did they say to the police, the ones that didn't die? And there's three things that are common in the last 19 years of school shootings. This is all plain. It's all hidden in plain sight. After the Highland shooting, there was another shooter who got caught by the cops. He was arrested, they took all his weapons, and he confessed. And he said, I wanted to see natural selection take place. Right? So you hear this, natural selection. Well, the last guy in, in Highland was a racist. The, the, the One race is better than the other. So racism, natural selection, and picking off the weak. Where do we hear that taught? in academia, whether it's the professors in college or the high school curriculum. Um, this is Darwinism. Did you know, how many people have heard that Darwin wrote a book called Origin of the Species? Okay. How many of you know that the title was actually truncated because it's an offensive title? <laughs> One person. So let me tell you what the, this book that is lauded by academia today taught in public school curriculum. Origin of the species by means of natural selection or the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. 
That's a racist book. Are you here? This one's racist, that one's racist. You want to find real racism? You want to know why kids... Oh, oh, God forbid, did somebody... Did a coach pray at a football game? Call the ACLU. Have them strung up and drawn in quarter. Get rid of the guy. He's an evil man. But this stuff can be taught in the school system. Now, I'm not against schools, and I'm not against teachers. I sent my son to public school. I wanted him to be a light in that school. And when he would bring home... um, He would bring home evolution paperwork. He would say, Dad, I don't believe this. I don't want to study this. I said, Josiah, you need to understand how the other side thinks. I said, I can go into your school tomorrow and get an A on that test. (laughs) He's like, what? I said, it's good to understand and have all the information and then make an informed decision. But all these school shooters, you're teaching young minds who are impressionable. You can't play a football game. God says that all life is precious, that there's only one race, the human race. No, 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 get that out of there. Let's teach them about evolution. Let's teach them about Darwin. Adolf Hitler used his, his theories and convinced the whole country, or the majority of the country, that Jewish people were inferior, right? So you wonder why these shooters, these young minds, they feel like they have nothing to live for, there's something wrong somewhere, and they're brainwashed to believe that their lives mean nothing, so what, what better to do than go out with a blaze of glory? Now listen, some of this might be uncomfortable this morning, but I'm just hearing stuff on TV and I've got to turn the TV off because it's irritating. Because we as a society, let's blame the gun. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Let's blame, let's blame an object. Because why? We can't take personal responsibility. And in order to solve this problem so there's not another one, we need to talk about this. We need to have a discussion that affects a lot of different variables, not just one subject, and nobody's willing to do it. And that's the sad thing. This, is, this stuff, this Darwinism, this racism, this natural selection is hidden in plain sight. Plain sight. I have the book. I saw the title. I read about how he felt some races were superior to others, and this is what we're teaching to our youth. That's tragic. So I just want to kind of leave you with that and say that we're not in a good place either. I mean, if you're a born-again Christian, you believe what the Bible says, there's no way we can come to the conclusion that everything's good in the United States. We can't. We have problems. We have to look in the mirror. And as Christians, hopefully we're, we're educating ourselves and engaging in the discussion in a loving matter, but to say things have to change. They can't keep going the way they're going. Stop being so antagonistic to God, to Christ. You know, we have to have that dialogue. Amen? Verse 15, we continue. He says, Thus says the Lord God of hosts. Now, the the subject changes. We're going from macro to micro. Go proceed to this steward, to Shebna, who was over the house, and say, What have you here, and whom have you here, that you have hewn a sepulcher here? As he who hews himself a sepulcher on high, who carves a tomb for himself in a rock, Indeed, the Lord will throw you away violently, almighty man. People like him were part of the problem, by the way, and will surely seize you. He will surely turn violently and toss you like a ball into a far country. You shall, there you shall die, and there your glorious chariots shall be the shame of your master's house. So I will drive you out of your office, and from your position he will pull you down. Then it shall be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and strengthen him with your belt. I will commit your responsibility into his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah, the key of the house of David. I will lay on his shoulder so he shall open and no one shall shut. He shall shut and no one shall open. I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place and he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. They will hang on him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring and the issue, all vessels of small quantity from the cups to all the pitchers. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, the peg that is fastened in the secure place will be removed and will be cut down and fall, and the burden that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. So what does all this mean? This is the last part. This really deals with, so you you got the big picture, right? You saw it was having problems in society. God kind of zooms in and says, well, there's an officer in Jerusalem that's really a problem. He's a traitor to the things of the Lord. 
he's setting a bad example, and I have to remove him from his office and put somebody in his place. So the guy's name was Shebna, and Shebna was all about himself. Him building a sepulcher for himself um, really was a representation of how he felt. Uh, there was problems, there was war, but here's a guy who's spending all his time taking this, and it wasn't a cheap uh, adventure, it was something that was, actually was very expensive, to carve out uh, pretty much a tomb for yourself, pretty much this sepulcher, uh, make it fancy, and, and basically it's, it's a, a testament to himself. The guy was probably a narcissist. Um, I told my wife, if, if I die before you, go as cheap as possible. <laughs> She's laughing. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Listen, I'm gone. I'm, I'm with the Lord. Save the money for you and Josiah. I don't care. You know, And don't let anybody guilt you. These are the conversations that I have, I'm telling you. So uh, here uh, Shebna is, he's building this monument to himself. And the irony was, he wasn't even going to die in Israel. One of the invading armies were going to capture him and to, uh, expatriate him to a foreign land. So that sepulcher sat there. And it was never used by him or his family because he was removed. Interesting. He had a flimsy footing based on pride when he thought he was sure-footed. And that's a, that's a concern. It's a concern in our culture. What does the prideful person think versus what's reality? Do you know what's going to happen tomorrow? Because I don't. You know? I have no idea. Sometimes God tips me off to things, but it's not often. So... You know, I have to live my life and just say, all right, I, my life is in the Lord's hands. Hey, I got up again this morning. Great. Pastor Paul and Pastor Vinny didn't have to take over for me. I know they're happy about that. <laughs> but, <laughs> but this is God's warning to Hezekiah that this guy's got to be replaced. Um, Shebna's got to go. And Eliakim needs to take his place. And there's some things that even men of God don't see that the Lord has to really kind of open their eyes to. This is a problem. You have to deal with it. Verses 20 through 25, Shebna is contrasted with God's man, Eliakim. And we see this in 2 Kings 18, which I taught on a few Wednesday nights ago um, with the siege of Jerusalem by the Assyrians. Now, there's three metaphors God uses to describe Eliakim. Number one, he speaks about him as a key. He speaks about him as a door. Now, Jesus picks this up. In Revelation 3, he speaks about himself as the door. You know, when, when I'm shut, nothing can come through. When I'm open, you know, open door, closed door, right? Very, an absolute picture back in those days. But if you are used by the Lord and your heart is for the Lord, you can be that key. You can be that door. God can use you to make things happen, and God can use you to stop things from happening. I'm blessed that God is using this church to get into the schools to start a scholarship program. I thought of that as I was teaching this. It's an open door. And I told my mole in the school, find me the kid that is struggling, is really trying hard to make it, and you know, this is, this is what I want, the scholarship, to go to those type of kids. And she's like, I'm on it. She's awesome. <laughs> they give her a lot of latitude because she's such a, an awesome, awesome person. But that being said, the second metaphor was a peg. Right? We say, well, what's a peg? You know, I kind of know pegboards. But the, a peg back then was before they really used uh, nails, and now we have screws and drill guns and all kinds of neat stuff, hilti guns for concrete. But back in the day, let's back up, they used pegs. They used these wooden pegs, and they would fasten things to it. They would fasten wood to wood. Actually, if you go and see a really old house, you can see really not nails, but wood beams attached to the, the house, and you see this circle. It's a peg that went through both uh, beams. So again, I'm, I'm bringing us back to that time. It's peg. So a peg was used for security and stability. And again, when we're being used by God, we can be used as a force for security and stability. I love this one, the third one. He says, you'll be a father to Jerusalem. What does that mean? It means that he's going to have a lot of spiritual children. And that's where uh, uh, discipleship comes into, you know, being a father, being a spiritual parent. If you've been a Christian for a while, maybe God has used you in a younger person's life to disciple them, to be that force of balance. Maybe they came from a chaotic or dysfunctional family, and God is using you in that person's uh, as a de facto spiritual parent. 
So as a father to Jerusalem. And he says, but Shebna, the peg that others thought was secure, he was going to remove, and everything else, all those that were trusting in him, were going to fall. And my question in closing is, what type of people do we surround ourselves with? Shebnas? Narcissists? They're all about themselves. They're all about their endeavors and their ideas. You know, selfish people? Or Eliakims. Maybe they're not the most popular. But you know what? They're serving the Lord. They're being used by God. What type of people are we? Are we like that door or peg or parental figure? Or are we all about ourselves like Shebna? Are we used by God at all? Do we give it any thought? Are we like the Israelites in Judah who were under the banner of God's people? They had the temple. They had the accouterments. They had the the city, the walls. But they were saying on the inside, hey man, let's eat and drink and be merry because tomorrow we could die. Let's party. Let's have fun. People are suffering and they're, they're just having a good time, right? You know what that really means? Let's eat and drink because tomorrow we die. It means that either you, A, don't believe in God or you don't care about his will. You're not concerned about stepping into eternity. You're not concerned about what's right and wrong or what he is pleasing to him or not pleasing because you're going to meet him soon and you just don't care. Right? You just want to get as much here as you can possibly get. And then who cares? When I die, I die. I'll deal with it then. That's a, a, foolish, it's a foolish mindset, especially for people who are believers. And certainly in, in the organization of the church. But Paul picks this up in the New Testament. Right? He picks it up. He says the same thing. Right? He knew the scripture. He knew the Old Testament. You know, God is a, a God of love. But he's also a God of warning. And I tell you that whatever he's saying back then to them, he's saying to our society. Seriously, what kind of fair God would he be if he said, Egypt, you're really prideful. You know, Arabia, you guys are trusting in the wrong thing. Jerusalem, you guys are behaving atrocious. Oh, American culture, you know, you guys are great. Everything is not true. It's not reality. The same message, repent. Look to God, repent, change, turn to God, and be used by Him. You know, to, to say, well, I, the self-directed life, I, I want to see, I want to go in God's direction. I do believe that Christ died for my sins. I do want to receive and accept of that. And I want to move forward in His love and His power and His Holy Spirit. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfield's by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.